following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. I heard the comments of the construction guys as they leered at women who were walking by, but that was nothing compared to the comments that were made by the guys that I used to work with a long time ago at the Albertsons Produce Warehouse. Understand, I, I felt like I had never been introduced to men who were more perverse. Uh, I, I never thought that I could, you know, actually be around guys that were like this. And I'm confident that I only say that because I don't work at your company and hang out with the men in your workroom or the ladies, etc. Most of them... The guys at the warehouse did not commit adultery. They were physically loyal to their wives. But I'm confident that the Lord was not impressed with their external fidelity. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus Christ is exposing now in the Sermon on the Mount. Would you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. If you're new with us, we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount verse by verse trying to draw out what God meant by what God said and not make the Bible say what we want, but what he intended it to say. And you need to understand the Lord is on a hill in the north end of the Sea of Galilee, and he has his disciples around us, and he's got this listening crowd who are basically hearing all these words that you're going to study with me today. And what's blowing you away is the fact that this listening crowd is trying to earn their salvation. They are guilt-ridden. They don't have salvation, and they have been moved away from God's Word to this oral tradition, all the applications, all of what the rabbis say. So they're trying to keep all what the rabbis say about God's law, not even what God's law says, and they're struggling and they're agonizing, and Jesus is trying to go, listen, I'm going to go after your heart today. I'm going to unfold what's really going on inside there so that you would then cry out for salvation, the true salvation. You would turn to Christ. You would realize that you're a sinner who stands condemned. And not just that you don't commit adultery, but that you are filled with lust. And there's issues in your heart that have to be dealt with, both men and women. And he's trying to recapture this lost crowd. He's trying to help them to understand what genuine salvation is. And he proves to them, through the course of the Sermon on the Mount, that they can't be saved by externals. They must deal with a transformed heart. Even though these people here are outwardly religious, they are inwardly raunchy. Raunchy. And so only God is the one who can wash you from the inside out. Only Christ is the one who can transform you internally and make you into a new person. And so that's going to come only through His grace-given, gracious salvation that comes as a gift to you that comes by faith, not by your works. And in this section of the sermon, he's going to give you six contrasts, all right, where he reminds them of what they've been taught by the Pharisees in their oral tradition. Then he compares that with what he teaches from God's actual word. He's trying to rescue them from this artificial religion. In fact, he says at the very beginning of this passage, Christ didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And six times in verses 21 to 48, he tells the crowd, you've heard it said, but I say to you. 
You've heard the oral tradition taught by the rabbis, and they misled you, they've distorted you, you're lost now because of it, but I say to you, let me tell you what I would teach that would draw you to Christ and genuine salvation. You heard the oral tradition, let me, I say to you, God's word. I'm going to give you God's word. Understand, verses 27 to 30, this is now the second of those particular contrasts, he reminds us that external adultery is bad, but internal lust is just as bad because lust is adultery of the heart. You and I often sin by looking with our eyes. We can sin through the touching of our hands, but the real problem, the core issue, is a lustful heart. A lustful heart. And the sin of the heart must be dealt with in the most aggressive way. In fact, D.A. Carson reminds us about sin. Even as Christians, he reminds us, quote, we are to deal drastically with sin. We are to not pamper sin, flirt with sin, enjoy nibbling a little of sin around the edges. We're to hate it, crush it, dig it out, because sin leads to hell, and that is the ultimate reason why sin must be taken seriously, end quote. The first century crowd here had been rightly taught that adultery was a serious sin. Jesus now teaches them that lust is just as serious. Just as serious. What does he say to them? What does he say to you about lust? I want you to read out loud with me from your outline, so we'll read it together. Verses 27 through 30. Let's start. Ready? Here we go. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If you, right, right eye, makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. You don't have to be a construction worker to be enslaved to lust. Lust is the number one sin of the men in this room. And a close second for women. We ask our men in the training center every year, a smattering of our congregation every year, old and young, what's their number one sin struggle? 85% will say lust. Their number one battle. And yet very few men today have declared war and are making proper, necessary preparations to resist this inner enemy. Really taking steps. Lust is a battle every man and every woman must learn to fight. In fact, it's not going to be easy. Let me tell you why. Lust is one of the most hidden sins. You don't see it. For men and for women, we hide porn addiction. We keep our inner fantasies to ourselves. We somehow believe God can't read my thoughts. And, and, and even though we hide lust, Christ warns us it is deadly. A second reason is that lust is one of the most excused sins. You need to understand that Romans 1 teaches us that God judges our culture by giving it over. And the Bible has already affirmed that God has given our culture over to lust. 
What that means is, is that they've, he's kind of released the gates of lust. So now our society is saturated with lust. Would you agree? And that's God's judgment. Because it's so common, we sometimes, because we're battling with it ourselves, say, well, everybody's battling with it, so, you know, what can I do? We excuse it because we're in the midst of God judging us for it. So we shrug it off. Can't be helped. We minimize our guilt. And in verses 27 to 30, Jesus looks you straight in the eye and says, I hate lust. And it is serious. Ask the Lord to say, what should I do? And as we open up this particular text, do not forget who you are, Christian. Don't forget, if you're a believer here, you're born again, every sin you have committed, past, present, and future, is what? Forgiven. It's washed. It's punished. It's taken care of. The moment you step out of this room, you're hit by a truck, you go right to heaven because of the grace of God. Amen? If you're in Christ, again, it's got to be evidence, but it's if you're in Christ, then basically you're set, but... Christians, though we are free and we are cleansed and we are washed, we hate sin. Amen? We do. Because Christ hates it. So this is what he's going to teach us, is we've got to deal with that internal art issue. We've got to deal with it. They know intrinsically, and so do you, you shall not commit adultery. So while committing adultery is more common than murder, which Christ just described last week in verses 20 through 26. We looked at it last week, studied it, anger. Adultery remains one of the big sins, right? That many people simply say, I haven't done that. See how religious I am? As they scratch that bad boy off their list. That's what the Pharisees were doing. I'm not committing adultery. I'm good to go. When Christ continues now with this paragraph, he says, but I say to you, as soon as he says that, he changes everything. I mean, he changes everything. He pointedly explains that the look of lust and the look with lust at someone who is not your spouse, even on a screen, is tantamount to committing adultery in your heart. So let's look at what he says, all right? Let's follow his explanation. Point number one in your outline, savagely protect your heart to resist lust. Savagely protect your heart to, protect, to resist lust. He says, verse 27, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He begins, you have heard that it was said. This is what you were taught, and he gives them the seventh of the Ten Commandments out of Exodus 20, and he basically says, don't commit adultery. And you know what that is. A married person is not to have sexual relationships with anyone other than his or her spouse. That's it. And God, through his authoritative word, takes this command so seriously, Leviticus chapter 20 teaches that the act of adultery was punishable by what? Death. And you know, in John chapter 7, when the woman was caught in adultery, faced Jesus, they're about to stone her to death because in the first century culture, they viewed adultery as a very serious sin. Unlike today, in our culture... We have drifted so far from God's plan that adultery has lost its horror. It really is in our culture. As an offense against God, we've kind of even cemented over the obvious consequences that to marriage and to children and to family and to ministry and to society itself. We've just kind of covered those over. But the truth is this. Any culture with moral conscience will take a marital betrayal as serious. Anyone. 
and so must every Christian in this room and every church. But why should we? Because God is the one who created the whole program. He created sexual intimacy for marriage and designed it to be exclusive for life. Every godly man here should pursue one life, one wife. God is the one who designed intimacy to function within the boundaries of marriage. God is the one who designed sexual intimacy in marriage to be a massive joy. Yet by God's design, we can mess this up by adultery. How bad is adultery? Well, write down as much of this as you dare, all right? Adultery breaks the marriage. Biblical marriage, you need to understand, is a vow to God and second, a union through sexual intimacy. The most important thing that goes on at the ceremony, the wedding ceremony, is the vow. And then their honeymoon, the union, that's what makes a biblical marriage, a vow and a union. Divorce in the Bible, we're going to see this next week, is only allowed for two reasons. One is abandonment, that breaks the vow, and adultery, which breaks the union of marriage. Now, God's grace is greater than our sin. Would I hear an amen to that? Praise God. And marriage can be restored. We have seen marriages often restored from adultery through real repentance, genuine forgiveness, almost as if it didn't happen. But adultery itself shatters the promise you made to God. It betrays the vow you made to a spouse and to God. Adultery is literally turning your life against God's plan, against God's will. Adultery is dishonest. Adultery is secretive. Adultery loves the darkness and flees the light of honesty. Would you compare these two things? I was just at a wedding yesterday. JJ got married. Sean did the ceremony. It was incredible. I was sitting in the third row, and we happened to be in the front. And behind me was a row of college gals. I didn't know who they were. But it was so funny. As they come down the aisle, you know, and all the parties, there's this, oh, oh, oh. You know, the little kids come down with the little pedals. Oh, behind us. I'm like, quiet. Sounds like a Hallmark movie. I want out of here. I mean, it's just, they're just enthralled. It's invite you to come, and it's a celebration, and everybody's happy and smiling, and etc. It's the exact opposite with adultery. The news of adultery leaks out by rumor or interrogation. It results in grief and sorrow and mourning. Adultery is a crime. It's dirty. Marriage is clean. Adultery marks the adulterer, and adultery crushes the innocent spouse by demolishing hope, determining trust, spoiling respect, wrecking security, and shattering love. Adultery harms children. Adultery divides families, ruins families, splits churches, divides friends, ends ministry, squelches joy, destroys society, and ruins our witness. No wonder he says these verses. Take a look at them. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be what? Burned. Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be what? Scorched. So is the man who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go what? Unpunished. Scorched, burned, unpunished. Proverbs 6.32, the one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. 
he would what? Destroy himself who does it. Marriage uh, is talked about in Hebrews 13.4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. Now get this. For fornicators and adulterers, God will what? Judge. It is a damaging, dividing, destructive sin. And any one sin can cast you into hell because we are in our presence of a holy God, there can be no sin at all, but adultery carries an additional damage and consequence that mark you. As Jesus is preaching now, he's telling them about this, but he is now about to drop a spiritual bomb on them. As bad as this is, he says in verse 28, what's he say? I say to you. And in doing so, he takes us to a place we never saw coming. And the listening crowd's going, what? Christ moves beyond the obvious external adultery to internal lust of the heart. He goes right after the heart. And he asks this crowd, and he asks every one of you here today, do you conceal lust in your heart and not answer your phone when you need to? Yet consider yourself, you consider yourself righteous because you have never followed through with the act of adultery? You know, I'm okay because I haven't done it. Did you show up today looking like some obedient Christian when actually your heart is just saturated with lust? That's why Christ is addressing the heart. Do you think as long as you don't do it, I'm okay, I'm good, I'm righteous, and Jesus says, not on your life. Adultery is not limited to just that external act. Adultery starts with looking. Look what he says, gazing, lingering, staring, or porning at a person as an object and not as a special creation of God made in his image. The look here is observing another person to whom you are not married to with lust. And write this down, lust is strong emotional desire, strong passionate desire. It's your emotions here that are in view. Verse 28, everyone who looks at a woman, look at it. Everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The looks is a long stare. It's a gaze, not a glance. It's, it's a second look. It's glaring at the screen. It's mentally undressing the, with the lingering lustful fantasy of sinful imagination. The word looks here in verse 28 is a present participle, present tense, which means it keeps on looking, looking long, looking hard. It's the gaze that excites sexual imagination of the heart. It's you mentally engaged in intensive, inventive behavior, mental actions reserved only for a spouse in a marriage bed. Are you like the Pharisees who merely consider lust as, you know, kind of a lesser sin as long as you're not committing adultery? That's how they viewed it, and Jesus is going, no, that's not right. He says, don't do that. Write this down. Fight lust with the same hatred you have for adultery and fornication. That's what he's saying. He's saying to fight lust with the same hatred you have for adultery or fornication. Don't make it lesser. So how then does lust attack us? Well, I want you to get this so you can turn in your Bibles or you can look at your outline in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. How does it progress? You need to know this so you know how it attacks you, all right? James is really clear, James 1, 14. But each one is tempted when he is what? Carried away and enticed by his own lust. Those two terms talk about baiting a trap. Strong emotional desire is the bait for the trap 
the worm on the hook. So when you follow your emotions, your feelings, your desires for pleasure, and you kind of camp on those, you're opening up your life to the sin of lust. What lures you in, point number one, or step number one, is strong desire. You got to get that. This is so important. Our culture has taught you that your feelings are good. Our culture has taught you that you can have these strong desires, and it's okay. And the Bible's telling you, you got to deal with those. Some emotions and directions and that, that bring about wrong thinking need to be nipped right away. They've got to be dealt with right away. When you follow that, you're going to be in trouble. Now, you know if you're a hunter at all, if you understand hunting, animals are lured into traps because the bait is too attractive for them to resist. I did a little turkey hunting. Uh, I had a little, little female uh, rubber uh, female turkey. And it's on a little post, and you move the string back and forth, and so it kind of moves, you know, and you're hidden behind a tree. They can't see it, and the toms will see that, and you call them in. Oh! You know, you do the whole turkey call, and these toms are going, whoa, baby, got to go see her. And so they start working their way down. You got to get them close enough so you can blow their head off and have a nice Thanksgiving meal, okay? But you're luring them in, and he can't stand it. Especially if you're really doing a good call and she's kind of moving a little bit and like, oh, baby, 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 you know, he's got to get down. Traps are set sometimes with stinky beef, you know, or meat or whatever that's rancid and they can't stand it. The smell is so overpowering, they lose all common sense, they lose their normal fear of danger and they desire it so intense. Listen, you have those emotions. They're super intense. You got to know what to do with them. And to do with them, the next step in James is say, you got to deal with them in your mind. you got to, step number two, deception of the mind. That's the next step. You either deal with it or you're deceived by it. When you start to think, I can rationalize my right to possess what I emotionally, intensely desire, when you feel and that becomes what you think, and if you don't deal with it in your mind, you're going to step into sin. You're going to get into the third step. The key is your mind. You can't always stop the emotions from occurring, but you can direct your thinking as a Christian. As a Christian. Now, I don't know if you can write this down, but you are to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit to act upon the Word of God in your mind, empowering you to mentally say no to what you desire, that strong desire. You intentionally say no to what you desire. Some of you guys are going, I can't help it, I and you collapse. you got to deal with it there. The battle travels from the heart to the mind, and then finally to the will. It's got to be stopped in the mind. How does it stop? First of all, what you think about. Okay, Philippians chapter 4, 8, whatever's true, whatever's right, whatever's pure, Right? Whatever's lovely, good repute, any excellence, anything worthy of praise, you got to dwell on that. Jason's sitting down here. All right, Jason, I'm picking on you. Good guy, godly guy, love him to death, all right? So I've got a magic cord. Okay, his wife, Leslie, told me that I should do this. And I take the cord, and I, all I have to do is place it in his ear. And when I place it in his ear, you get to see everything that Jason saw and thought this week. Wouldn't that be awesome? Would you do it? You, you would? You're the first guy ever. First hour, Bob was like, no way, baby. Wow. My illustration just bombed. 
Understand, nobody's going to want what you saw, what you thought all week long on that screen. You know why? Because that's where the battle is. That's where the battle is. That's where those thoughts, those emotions come through, and you've got to go, man, I've got to deal with it right now. I've got to say no to what I feel. That is so foreign to our culture. No to this intense desire, both for men and women. Understand, beware of the so-called harmless fantasy, ladies. Beware of the books you read, the shows you watch. They're fueling this fire, and it won't give you the kind of reserves you need. You need God's Word to dictate no in your mind, because the emotions are going to come and go. Those strong desires are going to come and go. You've got to stop it right there, because if you don't, the third step is disobedience. Disobedience. James 1.15, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Once conceived in the mind, your will's in gear, and you will go down that road. Strong emotion, your lust draws you in, you make a decision in your mind, and mental determination, a willful choice. In verse 15, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Once the decision's made, you have sinned. Once it wasn't stopped in your mind, the next step is your will. It's going to automatically engage. It has to stop in the mind. And you can't stop all your emotions. But you can stop temptation, Christian. Right? No temptation shall overtake you. As a Christian, you're indwelt with the Spirit. You've got the Word of God. You've got the body of Christ helping you. In your mind, you need to develop the physical and mental habits that hinder lust. In your mind, you have to develop the the actual mental habits that will help you to say no. Like Job. He had an external habit. His habit was Job 31.1. You see it there in your outline? I have made a promise, a covenant, with my eyes. How then should I gaze the long look at a virgin? I won't do it. So he's driving along, Job, in his chariot, right? Yaha. And there's this hottie on the side of the road. And he can see down the road there that she's really, really cute. What does Job do? He keeps his head straight ahead. He doesn't take the long look. He doesn't make the stare happen. He, I am not going to gaze at her. He's made that determination. Are you tracking with me? It's the practical elements of life that help us to begin to discipline our minds so we can stop it before it becomes an issue. So be on guard. Against the lingering look of sexual gratification, you got to turn away, quote scripture, say out loud, no! There's a lot of guys on the patio for weeks now are going to go, no, 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 okay, no, no, that's not going to happen. But understand, shut down the avenues of lust, create savage accountability. Not some guy that really likes you a lot and not going to call you on stuff, your best buddy. Talk to some guy that hates you, right, that lo- loves Christ, and he's going to deal with this. Savage account. Stop all electronic access with no culpability. God says lust is so dangerous, so powerful, that that even as a Christian, you have to flee. Write down this. Flee means run in terror. That's what it means. you got to act on this. This isn't legalism. This is obedience. Why do you run away? Because you and I can't handle it, both men and women. You must literally run in terror. 2 Timothy 2.22, now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call upon the name of the Lord from a pure heart. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. How much running away from lust do you actually do? 
Do you run for your life? Are you guarding your heart? You're saying, Chris, Chris, you're so worked up over this. Is it really that big a deal? More than you can even imagine. You say, how big? Take a look at verses 29 and 30. Whoa, compare them. It's the right eye. He talks about the right hand. That's your best eye in that culture and your dominant hand in that culture, the ones you can't do without. If they make you stumble, cut them off, throw them away. It's better to lose your best tools than to end up where? In hell. Point number two in your outline. Ruthlessly screen your sight to resist lust. Ruthlessly screen your sight to resist lust. This is the Lord's words, verse 29. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it away from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now you all know you can battle with lust in your heart without using your eyes. Would you say amen to that? You can be blind. You can be your eyes closed and imagining lust in your head. Can I hear an amen, or at least you agree? Okay. Don't be like the bruised and battered Pharisees. You know those guys, right? The bruised and battered Pharisees were so zealous, they would walk around with their eyes closed, lest they look at a woman and lust after her. So they literally walked around with their eyes closed. But because they did that, they ran into things. Thus, they became the bruised and battered Pharisees. I'm not making this up. That's what was going on in the first century. Sadly, lust occurs without the eyes. But your eyes do make lustful, you know, sinful lust easier. Verses 29 and 30 are two powerful illustrations, both of which end with a warning of hell. And the main idea is about lust. Lust leads you down the dead end road. Lust will not deliver what it promises. Lust, you think it will satisfy, but it leaves you empty. Lust, you think, will make you happy, but it only brings about shame, regret, and guilt. It only does that. And Jesus says, lust will ultimately, if you leave it unchecked, lead you to hell. The eyes, the eyes, what you see, opens the door for sinning with lust. It opens the door. David saw Bathsheba. Samson saw Delilah. The man of Proverbs saw the prostitute. He saw him. When you get serious about the sin of lust, you will get serious about what you see. You'll get serious about that. Stop messing around. Right now, run from those things you see which lead to lust. Run from them in terror. Sinclair Ferguson said, do it now, do it today without delay, quote, Act decisively, act immediately, even if it's painful, end quote. The drastic remedy, listen, of gouging out your eye, what's that supposed to communicate to you? Not to literally gouge out your eye. It shows you the extreme danger of the sin of lust and what Christ thinks of ongoing lust in your life. It's showing you what he thinks, how horrified it should make you. Verse 29, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out, throw it away from you. The Greek phrase causes you to stumble is present tense, which means if it keeps on causing you to stumble, it keeps causing you to fall into lustful sin through the eye. It continually keeps tripping you up, potentially leading you to hell. You would be wise to blind yourself instead of ending up with your whole body in hell forever. Far better. Now, 
your loving Lord is not asking you to mutilate yourself. That's not the application. There have been a lot of sincere, misguided saints who have rolled in thorns, literally, I won't tell you who they were, rolled in thorns to deal with this issue of lust. They castrated themselves in their misinterpretation of these verses, and then later on went, what a mistake I made. The real problem is not your body, but your lust. Not the eye, but your heart. Not the sexual drive, but your inner person. The eyes can entice the heart to lust. But you can lust without the eyes at all. The key to victory over lust is not a mutilated eye or a mutilated hand. The key to victory over lust is a transformed heart with a new nature, with an all-powerful and dwelling Holy Spirit within you, enabling you to obey His Word. No temptation shall overtake you that you cannot resist. Friends, Romans 6.17 A new born-again heart has a new desire to obey, and this heart is only gained, are you ready, by faith in Christ. That means you're surrendering your heart, your life to Christ and his work on the cross on your behalf. You know that he died there on the cross. The God incarnate, God-man, died there, took the punishment that you deserve for all your sin upon himself, then rose from the dead, can cover you with his righteousness, and transform you internally to give you a new heart that wants to obey and give you a measure of success in which to gain some victory over lust. It, Jesus is telling this crowd who are trying to earn their salvation, you're not going to do it, friends. You're not going to overcome that internal man. None of you in this room can overcome those internal desires. You can't. God has to change your heart. And empower you internally for you to be able to live for him. And not only do you need to also be aware of lust power through the eyes, but also lust power through touch. Number three in your outline, ferociously contemplate your touch to resist lust. Touch. Verse 30, if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Don't freak out, huggers. Don't do it. All touch is not evil. It's not. The Bible promotes natural affection between Christians and family members. Brotherly kindness expressed with physical touch. Even holy kisses in the church. Now, we're not going the holy kiss route, okay? But... When he's talking about kisses here, that's not the French thing where they, you know, kiss each side of the, you know, the cheek and kiss the air, you know, that kind of thing. It's not that. But you say, well, what's he talking about with touch here? Well, wisdom is needed and the Lord gives it. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, what's he say? It is good for a man not to, what? Touch a woman. The best interpretation of touch here is a touch to turn on. And that's what's the imagery here. So Jesus moves from sight, the vehicle of lust, to touch as a vehicle of lust. And by touch, your hand causes you to dive into lust and cut it off. It's better to enter heaven without your best hand than to have your entire body suffering and torment in eternity in hell because of constant lusting. It's better to lose a physical part than to lose the spiritual whole. It's better to experience a temporal loss than an eternal loss. Christian, the stakes are very high. Jesus is trying to communicate to you, you must not view lust as a lesser than adultery sin. It is a powerful sin, a sin you must flee, run in terror from, a sin that will mark you, destroy your marriage, ruin your family, and end your ministry. It's devastating. 
And Jesus is teaching his disciples and the crowd that's there and you this morning, don't rely on what you've been taught by the rabbis, by the Pharisees, by the scribes. They said, it's just about adultery, that's all. And he said, no, it's not. No, it's not. It's about lust. It all begins where? Where does it begin? In the heart. Lust is adultery of the heart. The eyes entice the heart. The hands persuade the heart to pursue lust. And this is why Jesus said earlier in the sermon that if you're really going to be pleasing to me, you've got to have Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, a pure heart. It's got to be born again. It's got to be changed. To get a pure heart, you submit to the work of Christ dying on the cross, rising from the dead for your sins that separated you from your God. When the Lord gives you a new pure heart, you'll depend on Him by faith. You'll turn from your sin and repentance. And now you'll be able to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and now desire to obey His Word. And you won't do that perfectly, but you'll plan on it. But don't be naive. Did the Bible tell you over and over again that you're in the midst of spiritual warfare? Yes or no? We forget because we're in a comfortable culture. So Jesus is reminding you, you have a war in front of you. And guess what? That war is in you. That's the biggest war. Stop blaming Satan. He's big, he's bad, and he's involved. But understand, it's you that's the problem. You are the issue. Men, women, it's you. You have to deal. You have to turn from your sin. You have to battle this battle. Don't be naive. You have a war and you have a fight and you got to battle your own desires. And that's rough. Anybody want to say amen to that? It's tough. You got to restrict your own eyes and make choices. You got to stop your own hands. You got to flee, which is run in terror from lust. Those are your responsibilities. John Owen said it this way. You need to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Pretty simple? So let's take it home. Are you ready? Letter A. Embrace the necessity to flee. What does flee mean? Run in terror. There are dangers you can't cope with. You, 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 it's hard for us. We're very proud. We think, oh, I can handle it. I can handle it. You can't handle it. You can't handle it. You've got to flee. You've got to run away. You can't watch everything you want to watch. You can't see everything you want to see. You can't do everything you want to do. You can't do it. You need to view lust, the, not the way the Pharisees did, which is no big deal. You've got to get savage. Flee. Run in terror. Immediately flee. Youthful lust. That means you change the channel. You shut it down. You get accountable. You get away. You break up. What are you doing in order to flee? Let me give you some P's. Are you ready? Write them down. Prepare for situations. Prepare for situations. Like Joseph. Man, he was ready to write. He knew what Potiphar's wife was going to do. He knew. He was ready. In fact, some of you need to prepare your electronics for no excess. Plan your environment. Don't be in the dark. Don't be up late at night, alone, at work, inside with anyone you're not married to. Plan your environment. Pick your people. Bad company corrupts what? Good morals. Most adultery happens among couples who are friends. Don't hang out with flirts. Make sure they're committed to their spouse. Another P, ponder your appearance. 
for you ladies in particular, ask an older godly person of the same sex what you should do and what you should wear and what you shouldn't wear. Paralyze your glances. Paralyze your glances. Another P, Job. Again, I've made a promise. I promise my eyes I will not, I will not stare. I will not focus on a virgin. I won't do it. I won't take that second long look. All right? Listen, you've got to flee. Lust is adultery of the heart. You've got to flee. Letter B, engage the steps to protect your marriage. Engage the steps. I like the translation. Don't normally like the NIV, but I like the way they translate Ephesians 5.3. It says, but among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Circle that word hint. Not even a hint. We need to set appropriate boundaries for dealing with the opposite sex. Let me share with you my Ten Commandments, all right? These are one way, not the only way. Uh, I, I don't want to be like a Pharisee and throw out my oral tradition and then, you know, you all become legalists and you forget what the Bible says. Okay, I don't want to do that, but I want to give you some, at least an idea of what you might need to do in order to live without a hint of immorality. So let me give you one approach, just one. Here they are, Ten Commandments. Number one, thou shalt not find yourself alone inside with the opposite sex, a car, an office, a house, a room, if at all possible. Number two, thou shalt not counsel the opposite sex alone more than once, and if once, very cautiously. Now, if you're trying to write these down, don't. I'm going to put this in the weekly update letter, okay, so you can kind of make up your own list. Uh, number three, thou shalt not continue to text, email, call in any ongoing manner someone of the opposite sex. Number four, thou shalt not discuss sexual problems with the opposite sex in counseling or anywhere. Refer them to the same sex. Number five, thou shalt not kiss linger hug different than a hug linger hug or unnaturally affectionate affectionate could be questioned toward any one of the opposite sex number six thou shalt not allow any mental emotional fantasy in your mind between you and a member of the opposite sex who is not your spouse discipline your thoughts number seven thou shalt not discuss marriage problems with anybody of the opposite sex man to man woman to woman couple to couple all right number eight Thou shalt be careful in answering cards and letters from the opposite sex, especially old boyfriends or old girlfriends or old dates. Number nine, thou shalt make your workmates, your schoolmates, and especially your spouse, your protective ally. And number ten, you shall pray for the integrity of everyone close to you. That's one way to live without a hint of immorality. Are you getting it? You have to make choices so that your mind is disciplined and you don't put yourself in a place where you could compromise. You stay away from that. I would rather personally go overboard than to be thrown overboard. Anybody with me on that? Get serious about the battle with lust. Not even a, what? Hint. Number, letter C. Elevate the consequences of lust. And as well, adultery. Elevate the consequences. Listen, listen. remember Proverbs 6. We already read it, 27 to 29. It warns. Adulterers will be burned, scorched, scarred, punished. You'll break your marriage. You'll destroy yourself, and you will be judged. Does that sound bad to you? Keep that in front of you. You could even add, in my marriage, uh, my wife has a gun and knows how to use it and will. Okay, so it's pretty, you know, we're just very, very open about it. Bam! Because it was 300 yards. Yeah, she got really good, okay? If repentance 
is not manifested, then eternal torment and everlasting fire, weeping, gnashing of teeth, and darkness, and this is not a joke, punishment and hell are almost certain if there's no repentance. Scarring of your spouse, the harming of your children, the ruining of your ministry are all a certainty in adultery. Then lust, just lust itself, will erode your soul, will damage your assurance, will harm your relationships, will steal your joy, will fill your heart with confusion and doubt as a believer, and if unchecked, will confirm that you're an unbeliever. Lust is so intense today, you know, it has degenerated into harsh perversion. It's now damaging in a way that we never even saw coming. Youth who are exposed to porn think that now porn, its perverse, self-serving behavior is normal. There is nothing of the beauty and the oneness and the romance and the selflessness of physical love that God describes in the Song of Solomon. You can't even measure them. There's the absolute opposite. Absolute. We must flee youthful lusts and long for our marriages to reflect the beauty of God's design for intimacy. Flee lust, pursue purity. And then letter D, engross your life in the pursuit of purity. Write this down, would you please? I'm going to give you a phrase and I'll repeat it so you'll get it. This pursuit of purity is a secret battle within. A secret battle within, starting with your mind. A secret battle within, starting with your mind, focusing on Christ. A secret battle within, starting with your mind, focusing on Christ, and living dependently upon His Spirit and by His grace. Let me say it again. A secret battle within, starting with your mind, focusing on Christ, and living dependently on His Spirit, by His grace. Listen, the Bible teaches us, Mark 7, 21, for within, out of, this is so plain, so direct, out of the heart of men and women, proceed evil thoughts, and the first thing up is fornication. This whole battle in the, in the sexual world here, and, and lust, etc. It's within you. This is the battle you got to fight. And it starts with your mind, Philippians 4.8, the true, the pure, the lovely. You've got to battle there. You've got to change the channel. You've got to turn the page. You've got to say, I'm going to think only of Christ at this moment, not what, where my mind's trying to go and my emotions is trying to take me. And you've got to focus on Christ. You've got to keep his work on the cross, his, the beauty of his character, the purity of his life, in front of you, it says in 1 John 3, 3, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is what? Pure. So you've got to surrender your life to Christ and, and believe and, and, and basically give him your life as he gives you his righteousness and transforms your heart and then causes the indwelling Holy Spirit to live in you in order to live pure. And then until heaven, gosh, can you face the reality? You are not going to be perfect until you get there. You are going to battle with lust, and sometimes you're going to stumble in this area. But the question is, are you fighting? Are you pursuing? Are you getting back up so the Spirit of God can conform you to the image of Christ? Are you memorizing the Scripture? Are you getting accountable? And you've got to live dependently upon the Spirit of God. You can't do this in your own strength. And then you've got to make sure you're focusing on His grace. His grace is what? Greater than your sin. You won't be perfect. You won't. And I'm so thankful that all my sin, past, present, and future, is taken care of. 
But even though it's taken care of, even though I'm washed, even though I'm right before God right now, not because of what I did, but because of what Christ did for me, I still hate sin and so do you. We hate it. We never want to misplease Him, right? We want to always please our Savior for what He did for us. And He's telling us we have to deal with this. And you know why? It's best for you. This is what's best for you. Don't get weary of the battle. His plan for intimacy and his strong desire is to be expressed in marriage is his perfect and joyous plan. He wants your focus to be on him. He wants you dependent upon him. For some of you, this is a clinging moment-by-moment dependence to beat this issue, to have some victory here. But understand, are you today single or married? Do you have the courage and the faith to say, this is God's will? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for the strength in which you say it. We pray that it might draw some to yourself and for the rest of us. Encourage us. Challenge us. Help us to battle with this. Help us to be different than our culture and to be freed internally from this wickedness that assails us in our culture. Lord, we pray that we might see some measure of victory in our lives over this. And Lord, we'll give you all the praise for what you'll do. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast. And a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.